The vision received was that of blood cells traveling throughout the body, supplying the much-needed oxygen and other nutrients to the differing members of the body to fulfill their purpose. Once the blood cells are spent, they must return back to the heart to be refilled before being sent out again and fulfill their purpose. Well, this lesson is part two. Um, it's really centered on the life of Jesus Christ. And last week we focused on the teachings of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> also, give you an idea or, or, or an outline of the New Testament, breaking it down into its categories, uh, realizing there's 27 books written or translated into English about 500 years ago. Um, but we looked at his birth. We looked at uh, the ministry of John the Baptist and how it was coupled with uh, Jesus' uh, beginning of his ministry. Uh, looked at the, the temptation in the wilderness, and we really, really focused on the Sermon on the Mount uh, and the things that we could glean out of that and how they apply to us. Um, but today, uh, we are going to focus on the identity of this man. This man is Jesus Christ, and he's referred to as a man in many different scriptures. Um, even explicitly saying, the man, Jesus Christ. So there is no denying that this was a man. Um, let's look at the parables. Jesus frequently taught in parables, and parables are kind of like short stories that try to convey something that's originally invisible, something in the spirit realm, if you will. And try to help man who is carnal try to get a glimpse of what's really going on in the kingdom of God or how the kingdom of God and his dynamics work. Um, a good example of one of Jesus' parables is the one called the parable of the sower. So if we'll turn there, it's in Matthew 13. It's actually in different places, but we're going to focus on the one in Matthew. Matthew 13, verse 3. Through nine, and we'll read one at a time, starting with Patricia. And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Matthew's 13, nine. 13, verse, now verse five through nine. Okay. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and thorns sprung up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I've gone over this uh, parable with uh, probably not all, maybe half of you here when we started our Bible studies here. So I'm not going to focus on what I focused on then. I'm just going to highlight here for brevity right now that Jesus told this parable to the masses that were following him. Um, 
But after the parable was given, even the disciples did not understand. And the disciples were curious. And I think one important element that we need to take out of this is that the disciples came to him and asked him to explain it. And any time that we go through the scriptures, we must not hesitate whether because we don't see him visibly to go back to him who spoke those very words and ask him to please explain it, to please clarify it, to please tell me how this word applies to me today, seeing that you spoke it over 2,000 years ago or roughly 2,000 years ago. Please help me understand what this means to me today. Now, Jesus is always willing to give divine understanding to those who have submitted themselves to him. Because remember, he gave the revelation to his disciples. It was his disciples that came to him. It was not all of the masses that were inquiring as to what did you mean when you spoke on the, the mount? Uh, what, what were these things we're talking about when you spoke to us by the seaside, when you got on the boat? No, it was his disciples that always came back to him to, to have the understanding, to have the explanation. And the explanation to this particular verse begins in verse 18. So we're going to turn there and continue reading one verse at a time. Matthew 13, verse 18 through 23. Hear ye the parable of the sower. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catches away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which receives seed by the wayside. But he that received the seed into stony places, the same is he that heareth the word, and anon with joy receiveth it. Yet has he not root in himself, but dureth for a while, or when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, by and by he is offended. He also that received among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this world and the deceitful the deceitful riches choke the word and he becometh unfruitful. But he who receives the word on the good ground is he who hears the word, understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some hundredfold, some sixty and some thirty. The key to understanding anything in this book that we read is seeking Jesus for the correct and complete explanation. And we must not hesitate to do that. That's the only thing right now I want to highlight. Do not hesitate. Do not be fearful of reading this book and reading these words which seem to the carnal man like just some black and white and sometimes red words on a white page. Talk to him. Pray before you get into the word. Pray after you get into word. Ask out loud, Jesus, what? I don't understand. What did that mean? And sometimes um, you need to have understanding or perspective through historical context, which is one of the things that we have tried to teach through our ministry, through our fellowship, is that sometimes you need to understand the history of what was going around at the time so that you can have a perspective that is valid and true because he spoke these words, even though they're spirit, even though they're life, even though they cross generations and apply to us today, he specifically spoke it to them in their day. 
And sometimes you have to understand what was going on in their day to understand what was he meaning when he spoke it to them. And once you have that understanding, then Jesus can expound to it and then give you understanding of, of how it applies to you today. So that's the only thing I want to highlight to you. When we get into the word and we run into situations where we don't understand, do not hesitate to ask the Lord right then and there, Jesus, I don't understand. Please explain this to me. Now, during his ministry, Jesus did many miracles. A miracle can be defined as a mighty act that defies the normal laws of what we call nature or the normal laws of science, as we call it today. And often miracles were designed to teach us a lesson. Let's look at one example. If everybody goes to Matthew 14, verse 22, or at least we'll start in verse 22 and go through 23. And I guess I'm next, right? Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. Matthew 14, verse 22, now 23. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spoke unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched excuse me, forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And then when they were coming to the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth thou art the Son of God. Now the lesson of this miracle is that Jesus has power over the greatest storms. Actual power over the storms that we kind of get afraid of, tornadoes and hurricanes, and we kind of shelter and hunker down in the, in the, in the place that, that we feel is going to be the safest and the securest. But Jesus, in the midst of the sea, walking on water, was not at all afraid, was not at all worried, was not at all concerned. For he has power over the storms that come about, naturally speaking. Now we can now relay this to our lives and realize that Jesus has power over the greatest storms that come against us. And he is able to walk on the water. And he is able to not only walk on the water of those storms of our lives, he is able to cause you to walk on the water of those storms that are in your life. 
when he enabled Peter to walk on water, he was demonstrating his ability to enable us to walk on top of our circumstances. And Peter only began to sink when? When he took his eyes off Jesus and he focused on the waves and the wind and the water. And he put them on the storm. Our deliverance comes when we keep our eyes on him who is able to save our souls. So we talked about the parables of Jesus. We talked about his miracles, but there's also Jesus who is specifically manifested to build the church. Let's look at Matthew 16, two more chapters. Verse 13 through 19. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is 14, verse 14. Oh, I'm sorry. So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Keep going. And Simon Peter answered and said, <laughs> Thou art Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now we know from previous uh, studies that the church is not a physical building of brick and wood with a roof and all of that. There's actually an Old Testament name that God used for his eternal dwelling place. Does anybody remember that name? Zion. Zion. Thank you. Yes, or S, depending on whether you got it in the Greek or the Hebrew. But yes, Zion is his eternal dwelling place. And he just said to Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. Jesus is building a church. On what rock? The rock of the revelation that he is the son of God. Because Peter said, you are Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds, you were revealed this revelation by my father who is in heaven. And on this rock, I will build my church. On this revelation, I will build my church that I am the Messiah, that I am the son of the living God. Now, Jesus is the one who's building his church and notice that he gives the keys, the Javes, to unlock the door to the kingdom of heaven to Peter. He gave him the keys. Let's read verse 20 
May I please, if it's not in the yes. room? Yes, um, sure. Um, okay, so Catholicism um, right there determines that Peter has been given the church. It's his church. He's founding it. Mm -hmm. On this rock, I will build it. In, in your knowledge of the Greek and all that kind of stuff, um, when it says... Which is not uh, that much. <laughs> I just want to put that on record. Okay, don't belittle my compliment, please. <laughs> um, and oh, upon this rock, does uh -huh. it do any better... Um, to distinguish, like you just said, and upon this rock, this rock is the revelation that he did not receive of himself. Right. It is not some greatness of Peter mm -mm. or something like that, which is how the Catholic Church takes it. Yeah. Is there any better distinction? I mean, does it... I mean, I, I, I've always told you guys, the most important thing to, to understanding the scriptures is that you have to understand it in context. In context, we just read it together, and in context... He gave out this profound revelation that the Pharisees didn't understand, you know, and some of, you know, there was a woman Samaritan that actually did, but that was that revelation that he had been given. And, and if you read the book of John, that is the red. He is the son of God. He is the son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the one that was promised throughout all the Old Testament prophets. And it was when he gave that revelation that Jesus said to him, and it was the importance that Jesus put on it that makes it so paramount. My father gave this revelation to you. Not any man, not flesh, not blood. Not any man gave this revelation to you. And then he says, continuing on this rock, on the rock of this revelation, I'm going to build my church. And if you understand anything about the new covenant, it is upon this rock that he built his church, that he is the son of God. And who is the son of God? Behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Behold, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And what was the point of him coming? To die for our sins so that we can have a new life, a second opportunity. Did you have a... Well, no, yeah. I just got excited because then I see the keys that Peter the keys that Peter had is Peter was the first one that preached the gospel unto salvation when they received the Holy Ghost. And he unlocked the kingdom of heaven to everyone that listened because those that heard and, and received and obeyed received the Holy Ghost. And there's the kingdom. I mean, I, I don't know. This is pretty cool to me. She's right. Peter was the one who stood up on the day of Pentecost after receiving the baptism of the Holy Ghost along with the 120, and he stood up and he preached. What was he preaching? Jesus. He was preaching Jesus. He was identifying Jesus for all the people. This person, this Messiah, this is whom God was with doing mighty miracles and all of these other things, whom you crucified. He was telling them all about Jesus. He was revealing Jesus to them. Upon this rock, who was Jesus? The Messiah. He was the promised one. He was the one you were waiting for. And you killed him. And you crucified him. And you put, hung him on that cross. And so it's upon this rock that he's building his church. On the rock of the revelation of what is the first few words of anybody know of Revelation 1.1? Anybody know the first few words? The revelation of The revelation of Jesus Christ. It's all about him. Now, what was the Old Testament? We've talked about this before. The Old Testament kept looking forward to this what? The Messiah. The Messiah. It was all about him. And then when we get to the new covenant, he's manifested in the flesh. In the days of his flesh, he's doing great and mighty miracles and deeds. And then the church is birthed through the revelation of the Messiah. 
that it was God manifested in the flesh, which we'll come to. So let's continue reading the next two verses, 20 and 21. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Again, what is he telling the disciples not to mention to anyone? That he, Jesus, was the Christ, the Messiah. Okay? Now, in Ephesians 2.20, Jesus is referred to as the cornerstone. Mm -hmm. Jesus said, I will build my church upon this rock. And in Ephesians 2.20, if anybody can go there and just read it out loud to us, it says he is the cornerstone of what? And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, if you look at verse 19, it says, Now for you are no longer strangers, you are no longer foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and you are of the household of God and are built upon the foundation. So I have to connect that so you don't think that, oh, he's talking about a building. And no, he was talking about the saints of God are built upon the foundation of which Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He's the main block of it all. And then the apostles and the prophets are a part of that cornerstone. We've, we've talked about that before. So I just want to connect that to, upon this rock, I will build my church. The rock is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is the son of the living God. He is the Christ, the Messiah. And his death his burial and his resurrection laid down that cornerstone because if he had not died, buried, and rose again, what's the point of following after Jesus? He's just another man that said a bunch of nice things that died and stayed dead, but no, he rose again. He has power over life. He has power over death now. Death, hell, and the grave. So this was the beginning of all that the old covenant was referring to. Jesus and what he was going to do. Let's continue to read verse 22 through 27. Same, chapter. same uh, Matthew 16, same chapter. Is it my turn? Okay. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happened to you. What was he talking about? Jesus had just said that 
He, that Jesus was relaying to the disciples how he must go to Jerusalem, he must suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and he must be killed and he must be raised on the third day. And here Peter is saying, no, 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 that's never gonna happen. Oh, no, 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 God forbid. No, 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 this, this will not happen to you. Hmm. Next verse. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profit if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? But what should a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. These verses that Jesus just spoke tells us that to become a part of God's eternal church, and church is not a building, the word is ecclesia, and it means the called out ones. To become a part of God's eternal called out ones, you must follow the same pathway that Jesus lays before you. This pathway is through self-denial and doing what is right in God's eyes. Doing what is pleasing to him. So we come to the question, who exactly is Jesus Christ? Peter said he was Messiah. He was the son of the living God and he was not corrected. Jesus said, absolutely. And upon this rock, I will build my church. So is Jesus Christ God or is he the son of God? And what exactly is the relationship between God, the father and his son? And many are confused by these questions. Some consider that the whole issue is a mystery. We can never understand it. It's just a mystery. Can't be understood. But the truth is, God has not hidden himself in some incomprehensible mystery and in some incomprehensible way, but he has always revealed himself to everyone who really wants to understand him. He has revealed himself to everyone that has committed themselves to him, has surrendered themselves to him. He doesn't hide himself from his disciples. He doesn't do it because his disciples always come to him. His disciples always seek him and seek after him and seek after his revelation from him. They always do that. Disciples do that. So let's look at something interesting in Matthew 22, a couple chapters over, verse 41 through 45. were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David. 
43 now. He saith unto them, How then does David in, in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Amen. If David then calls him Lord, well, how is he his son? It's a riddle. Yes, there are mysteries in the scriptures. There is no doubt about that. There are things that are hard to be understood that even Peter said when Paul was writing his letter. He wrote things that are hard to be understood. They are called dark sayings. They are called mysteries. And yes, they're there. But they remain mysterious to those who think carnally, who tho to those who do not get a revelation. A revelation just simply means like you were in darkness and God shines his light and then you're like, oh, I see it now. That's all it is. And God is willing to do that with those that are willing to seek him for it. So he comes to them and he says, well, who is Christ? Whose son is he? If David in the spirit called Christ, Lord, how is it that Christ is also the son of David? Because they, under, they said, oh yeah, he's going to be of the genealogy of David. He's going to be a son of David. Yet David himself in the spirit called him Lord. How is that? There's a riddle there. It needs to be understood. The Pharisees never understood it, but he gave them that riddle to confound the wisdom of the wise. You who know the scriptures front to back, you who copy the scriptures and don't make any mistakes, and if you do, you rip up the scroll and you start all over again, explain this to me. Now, Jesus was quoting from, anybody know? Psalm 110. Psalm 110. And the question he posed was, how can Messiah be both David's son and David's Lord? That doesn't make no sense seemingly on the surface. Now, Jesus himself gives the answer in the book of, anybody know? Anybody know which book? We should know. Keep Revelation. Revelation. Turn to Revelation 22.6. I'm sorry, not 22.6, 22.16. And there's no doubt on who's speaking because it starts with, I, Jesus have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David. I am both David's son <laughs> and David's Lord. He says it unequivocally. There, I mean, there's no doubt. And the bright and morning star. Now, somebody explain. What does he mean when he says, I am the root of David, but I am also the offspring of David? What does that mean? From whence he came and from whence he came out of. Whence. I don't even know what that word means. You need to speak to me in modern English. Whence. I don't know what that means. Does that mean when? Yeah. Talk to I, me I, now. I just know how to talk it. I don't know how to describe it. Maybe the offspring, <laughs> the, the genealogy, he comes down from the line of David, offspring. But the root, he's, he's before. He's, before. he's where David came from. 
and he came through the line of David. He's the beginning and the end. Beginning and the end. Yes. Beginning and the end of what? Because the root, the root is the beginning. The root. Okay, so help help us understand what does a root mean? The root is 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 the what anchors a plant. The beginning of a plant. It oh, at the root. The beginning of a plant. It's a seed, and it the first thing it does roots start growing out. That's the start of the tree. You don't even see the tree. But the first thing that happens is roots start growing out, branching out. That is the beginning of a tree. And then it springs forth. And that tree, let's say it's an apple tree. What is it? What is its offspring? Fruit. Oh my gosh, it's a fruit. So it's apples of fruit. And Jesus is saying, not only was I the root of the tree, but I'm also the apple of the tree. I'm both. He says it himself. Now you may not understand that. But you need to accept the fact that Jesus declared, answered the question that the Pharisees couldn't answer, and he plainly says, I, Jesus, am the root and the offspring of David. I am. I am his, I am David's beginning. And all David was like a part of the tree, a part of the branch, I am also his offspring. I am his fruit. But don't neglect the fact that I am his root. Because then you start understanding the eternalness of Jesus. So, as the offspring of David, Jesus is the son. He's of the lineage. He came out of David. He came out of Solomon. He came all the way down to Joseph. And then if you follow Nathan's line, all the way down to Mary. And he was born in Bethlehem nearly 2,000 years ago. And since this son was conceived by the Spirit, of the Almighty God in the womb of a human woman because you have to understand Mary was a virgin. She should have never bared any child. That's not possible, but there's the miracle. And through the spoken word of God that was declared through the angel, Mary accepted it, not maybe understanding it, but just said, be it done unto me according to what you just said. Boom. It happened. Her faith mixed with God's word conceived in her a miracle that cannot be answered by science. And so he is both the son of God because it was by the Holy Spirit of God that this, this uh, child Jesus was conceived, but also the son of man because it came through the womb of Mary. So both the terms refer to his humanity, Jesus the man. He was the son of God and the son of man. And that's clearly laid out in all four gospels. Yes, he was the son of God, but he also said he was the son of man. And if you count the number of times, he said he was the son of man a whole lot more than he said he was the son of God. He said it countless times, much more than he said he was the son of God. Now, as the root of David, Jesus is the almighty, God himself. Who was... who? If we looked at it in natural terms, who was the root of David? How did David begin? Follow his line backward. Who did it begin with? It goes all the way back to Adam. Thank you. But how did Adam begin? God By God. God created Adam. So again, he was even before David. He was before Adam. He was the creator of Adam that brought forth David. But then at the same time, he brought himself forth through the womb of Mary as the son of man or as the son of God. So David, like all men, was a descendant of Adam. But yet Jesus was Adam's root, his source of life. 
So the answer to the question, who is Jesus Christ, is he is both God and the son of God. <coughs> he is both the root and the offspring of David. Another way of saying that he is both God, but he was a man. He took upon himself the form of a man. Does anybody know where that's at? Philippians, yes, Philippians. You might want to write that down, Philippians 2. In the Greek, the word was kenosis. I guess we can go there. Starting in verse 5 through 13. And then we can go into Hebrews. I'm going to just give you these scriptures because they're not going to read it all. But you can read Philippians 2, 5 through 13. You can also look up Hebrews 2. Did I say Hebrews 5 through 13? Philippians. I see, yeah, that's what I meant. Philippians 2, 5 through 13. You can also look up Hebrews 2, 17. You can also look up Hebrews 4, 15. The mystery is how God did it. How in the world did the omnipotent, almighty, omniscient, omnipresent God come as a mere man? That's the mystery. But nevertheless, it's true. Jesus Christ came or was in the form of God. And he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But he put off his own glory as God, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, and he came in the form of a man. He took upon himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a servant. It says, was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man. <coughs> there is no doubt Jesus was a man. And he was obedient unto death, even to the death of the cross. And if you look in Hebrews 2, 17 and Hebrews 4, 15. In all things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. His brethren was mankind. It says in, in chapter 4, verse 15. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He understands what it is to be a man because he became a man. Now let's read John 1.18. going to be in John for two, two scriptures. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. As God, the Spirit, He's invisible. The Spirit cannot be seen. 
as the son, the one who was born, he brings the spirit, the invisible, to visible form. He's now made visible in the flesh. And now this invisible God can be seen through Jesus. And Jesus said, if you have seen who? You have seen the? He made the invisible visible. Because it was he that came as a man. It wasn't sending some other relative. He came as a man. Look at what John chapter 14 verse 9 says. John 14 verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? I mean, Jesus was like dumbfounded. Why do you ask me such a question? How long have I been walking with you? Don't you understand? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Now, how does that go in some other scriptures? In the Colossians 2, verse 8 and 9. There's a warning given to Timothy. Beware, Timothy, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men. There's a tradition of men out there that is a lie and it is deceitful and it is philosophy. And according to the basic principles of the world, it is not according to Christ. Then it says very clearly, for in him, meaning the man Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in a body, bodily. But I don't believe it gets any clearer than what it says in 1 Timothy 3. Verse 16. One of those famous 3.16 verses. You got John 3.16. But 1 Timothy 3.16 should be one that you should flat out know. Because we sing it so many times in church. You should know this song because it's the scriptures. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. You see, I'm not telling you that it's, it's not a mystery. It is a mystery. Great is the mystery of godliness. Now, what is godliness described in this context? God was manifested in the flesh. Because everything that Jesus did was godly, if you will. It was God walking out his life on earth as a man. That was the mystery. How did God become a man? But he did, whether you understand it or not. He was manifested in the flesh. God was revealed. That's another word for manifested. Revealed in the flesh. He was uh, made visible in the flesh. Justified in the spirit. Seen of angels. Preached unto the Gentiles. Believed on in the world. And received back up into glory. Jesus Christ, this man that we know in history, was none other than God come in the flesh. This does not mean that he was merely God in a human body. He was God as a human being, including both his body, both his soul. And there were many times that he spoke 
And it seemed like, okay, that's a man. And then he spoke as his real nature. God, he spoke as God. I and the Father are one. When they came to crucify him, where's Jesus? I am. <laughs> they all fell down. I mean, he spoke with the authority. I mean, his miracles were because of the authority. Remember, who was it that dwelt in him in all his fullness? God dwelt in him in all his fullness. Now, it's important that we understand that he was both the root and the offspring of David. He was both God and the son of God. Because in 1 John 2, 22, whether you understand it or not, if you don't accept it, you have serious spiritual problems that have serious, grave spiritual implications, eternal implications. So let's all turn to 1 John 2. Twenty-two. Who is a liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Remember the rock? Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. If you deny that he was the Christ, you're a liar. He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Not only is he talking about the identity of this man as being the Messiah, the Christ, because that's, that's just the Greek word for the Messiah, the Hebrew word, but he is also Antichrist that denies the Father and the Son, which is what we've just been speaking about. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. And he who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. But isn't that what Jesus said? You cannot come to the Father lest you come through me. He said to Philip, once you've seen me, <laughs> you got the Father. You have both. Because he was trying to reveal to them that I and the Father are one. Wouldn't... Um... Hmm? Wouldn't someone Trinitarian who has issues with oneness people use this verse to say that um, because we say he's one God, we're denying the Son? But are we denying the Son? Isn't that what I just said, that Jesus is both the root and the offspring? Jesus is both God and the Son of God. He's both. But, but there's a tradition of men out there that they're not willing to accept as being a tradition, that is a lie. It is a deceitful lie. And through the tradition of men, you basically nullify the word of God. What does the word of God say? Yes. If I can share, um, from your statement, Patricia, um, most of the Trinitarians will say that um, some, some, we do I acknowledge the Son too much. And that we deny the Father, that's the, the downfall there, as opposed to denying the Son. As, as far as like the, what we call like the Jesus only, saying, well, you're only focusing on Jesus. Oh, okay. And so you're denying the Father, so you're, you're mm -hmm. unbiblical in that sense. But the verse here in 23 says, it says, Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the, th the Son hath the Father also. So that's a protection right there, that mm -hmm. if you are seeking Jesus, you're honoring the Father. Excellent point. 
Excellent point for those that say you're focusing too much on the sun. Well, the scriptures declare to us that if I acknowledge the son, then I'm acknowledging the father also. So what's, the, what, what's your problem with me acknowledging Jesus? And you hear it in the songs from Trinitarians who acknowledge Jesus and yet they hold to this Trinitarian idea of form. And see, when we talk about it, sometimes we talk about it as the Father and the Son are, are different people. And we talk back to them as if that was the case. Mm -hmm. And so the only thing I'm going to flash out to you as an idea, if you, if you ever run into this problem, that, you know, before I became a father, I was first a son. I was a son to my father. And when I had children, I became a father. And now I'm a father and a son. I don't have to be two different people to fulfill those two different offices, if you will, or those two different roles in my life. But on top of that, I'm a cousin. On top of that, I'm a brother. Uh, no, I'm not an uncle yet. Um, <laughs> I'm a husband. There you go, there was my other. I'm a husband too. I could be all these things. And I don't have to be different people to be that. Now, is my relationship with my children as a father, is it gonna be slightly different? <laughs> slightly. It's gonna be very different than my relationship with my wife as a husband. That'll be altogether entirely different. I'm going to relate and talk and, and, and have a relationship with her differently than I would have with my children. Or the way that I relate as a teacher to my students at school is going to be very, very different than the way that I relate to my wife or to my, uh, to my own father. Because I relate to him as a son. But I'm all those things and I don't have to be different people to do that. And so in that I'm using it just as an analogy to help understand, to hopefully help reveal that, hey, God can be all of these things and still be God. You restrict him as if like, well, you can only be the father here and there has to be somebody different to be the son. Even though you keep saying they're one. Even though you keep saying, well, in essence, they're one, but they're different and, and, and you know, they, it just becomes very complicated and convoluted but if you just stick to the scriptures, God himself said, I am God alone. And I created the heavens and the earth alone. There was no one else with me. And then when we read John 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh in verse 14. And that flesh was Jesus, none other than Jesus. Nobody else would argue with that. So Jesus was the word originally. And through him, all things were made. All things were created by him, through him, for him, were all of these things. And it's just amazing how God can be God and still do all of these numerous things all simultaneously and still be God, even though he became a man and limited himself in that way. Wow, awesome. That's God. So I just wanted to go over that with you so that you would have a biblical understanding. I mean, I can go through a ton more scriptures to show you, um, you know, what God said and, and, and do a lineage. But we just wanted to focus on that so that we'd understand. Um, and I'm going to give you a copy that, that shows you how Jesus was spoken of as the rock. But in the Old Testament, God was the rock. It says in the Old Testament, uh, God is the king. Mm -hmm. But then it says Jesus is the king. And then it says, God is the shepherd in the old covenant. 
But then it says in the New Covenant, Jesus is the shepherd. And then it says God is coming in the Old Covenant and in the New Covenant. And then it says Jesus is coming. And you're not talking about two different people. One of the things that I'm trying to bridge here is to not think of the Old Covenant as something separate. It's a continuing story right through to the New Covenant. It's one complete book revealing the God of the Old. Remember what we talked about? The Old Covenant is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. That's all it is, but it's the same story. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, forever more. And so all of these things, Jesus was the first and the last, it says in the New Covenant. But it was saying God was the first and the last in the Old Covenant. And all you're doing is getting that God is revealing himself as Jesus. Jesus, the God that saves. God is salvation. It says God, the I am, the I am that I am. And Jesus said, well, I am. I am. It said um, God is the creator. I mean, we got that clear, clear. God created the heavens and the earth. And then we have Jesus is the creator. Many, many verses. And we realize that that scripture that says that in him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. It was the mighty God in Christ Jesus. Many scriptures. God, it says here in 2 Corinthians 5.19, you can write this down. God was in who? Christ, the Messiah. God was in the Messiah reconciling the world to who? To Jesus? No, to himself. So when Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father, that's why. Because God was in Christ. It says, where does the fullness of the Godhead dwell? In Jesus Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And then we have God was manifested in the flesh. So let me give you this. And this will include the review for this particular lesson. You can take one, pass it around. But I also have something I want you to work on. There are, we, we talked about this early, early, early on. I think it was the first uh, thing when we were introducing the Bible. We talked about that there's a lot of prophecies that have been fulfilled. And I want you to see 20 of them that were already fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So that you have at least a nice list and you might want to, this is what I've done in my Bible because I, I, I don't have the memory for this, you know, but I write down in my Bible in the back when you have your black, blank white pages, I make a list of all the prophecies that were fulfilled by Christ that were prophesied in the old covenant. It's good for you to have on tap in case you ever need it and you run into someone that just doubts the veracity of the scripture. You have it right here. This is something spoken of in the year 1500 BC, but look at what Jesus did and how he fulfilled it. Isn't that awesome? Oh, you don't think that's awesome? Well, let me show you another one. And let me show you another. And then you can you got a list of 20. But what I didn't do was I left a blank here. You have to figure out what um, Old Testament scripture goes with the New Testament scripture so that you can see that it was fulfilled. So if you take that and pass it around. And then there's a beautiful chart on the back. Talking about the wheel of God, the, prophet, the, the prophecies of God that were fulfilled in Christ Jesus to see that Jesus was none other than God himself in the flesh. Thus is the ministry of our Father's heart through us. Our utmost desire is to be in the Father's heart, to know the Father's heart, and express the Father's heart to you. 
If you appreciate listening to this podcast and we're blessed, pass it along to someone else by text, email, or word of mouth in the hopes that they might be positively impacted as you were. If you are interested in supporting our efforts, we would ask you to consider the following. One, pray for us. Two, leave a positive rating or review with whomever you listen to our podcast with. And three, if you desire to contribute monetarily, you can do so at paypal.me slash jbenjesus or cash app dollar sign jbenjesus or Venmo jbenjesus. That's J. B-E-N-J-E-S-U-S. God bless.